Good morning. When I say, let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, what do you think of when I say that? What does that conjure up for you? Those of you at home, those of you driving, uh, those of you in the room, when I say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What, what does that conjure up? What, is that, what emotion maybe even does that bring up? What thought does that bring up for you? To put it more pointedly, does that statement, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, does that intimidate you or inspire you? Does that discourage you or encourage you? Because when you hear the, be worthy of, it feels performance-driven a bit when you hear that on the surface without unpacking it all. So let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, Carmel. So whether that inspired you or intimidated you, encouraged or discouraged, I, I want you to turn to chapter one, verse 27. We're gonna finish chapter one today and we're gonna see the improbability of joy because he's still talking about suffering. We're gonna move from that next week, but we're gonna talk more about his suffering, but here's one thing that's interesting. The first 26 verses of the chapter thus far has been a bit of Paul just like filling in the blanks with what's going on in his life. Um, but today in verse 27, we're gonna start looking forward and he's gonna encourage them with this you know, manner of life being worthy of the gospel. So let's check out these four verses, which are it's, it's, one, it's one sentence in the Greek language. It's, it's a two or three in the English here, but it's one in the Greek because there's this, he just kind of throws out in, in mass. So verse 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that, I, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, let's jump in. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. NIV says it this way, just one thing, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in ESV, it says only. It's just this abrupt like, all, all that he said thus far is like, you know, background, miss you, love you. But this one thing, as we move forward, I want you to get this one thing. Now, when Paul normally wrote letters to churches about living and walking, you know, metaphorically walking out your life in him, he used a different word than the one here. The word he uses here, he uses twice in the entire New Testament. And its root is related from polis, as in political. It was a Greek word for city. And, and there's this natural connection that they would have made that is not so natural for us, but because they were super uh, proud of and fired up about being Roman 
citizen. So if this is your first day in the series, Philippi was this outpost that had been um, won by some uh, skirmish and the veterans of that war were granted land. And it was this, they were a mini Rome and they had all the privileges of Rome. And that was a big deal for them being hundreds of miles from Rome itself. And he's not gonna talk about or use this word again until he gets to chapter three when he talks about our citizenship is there. But the way the intimation, this is a nuanced word when it says manner of life. And this is interesting. Let your manner of life be is one word. And it is this word from polis as the root. And it's, it's this not so subtle reminder to them to say, hey, look, I know you love being Roman citizens, but I wanna challenge you right now that your citizenship is firstly in heaven and secondarily here on earth. And that's important if you really love where you live because if you really love where you live, you can make it an idol and you can put its priorities above the priorities of the kingdom, right? And so he says to them, I want you to live in this way that is worthy of the gospel. And he's challenging them, Let's, let Christ, not Caesar, be your model. It's Christ, not Caesar. It's Christ first and then wherever you live and the laws that you should obey and all of that. So it begs the question, how do I do this? How do I let my manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Because he hasn't said so yet. Well, check it out. He continues when he says, so that... So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm. Here's our first thing. He goes, I want you to, here's how you live worthy. Stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in one spirit. And it was a military term. And remember, they're like, yeah, we're Romans. We get it. We're like all in. We're like, yes, like together as one. And I forgot what series this was years ago, but I, I showed you something like this and we, it was called Turtle Time. And it was this, this is a reenactment obviously, but it shows you um, the strength of the Roman army. This is a tiny picture of a massive picture because imagine that with thousands marching towards you and you and your little misfit army has a bow and arrow <laughs> and no shield and you fire and it hits the roof or it hits the front door of their little turtle shell and as they can move and destroy. But what you see in that picture is a oneness. You pull one dude out of that, he still might have a roof and a front door, but he's really exposed. And so what you hear already, and we're gonna hear more as we move through the text, it's one spirit. It's gonna be one mind next. And so there's the our worthy walk of the gospel is best demonstrated when we do it together, not alone. Like no private can win a war alone. No general, for that matter, can win a war alone, right? It's all as one, working together in concert, to use a different metaphor, symphonically, tight together, all the instruments pulled out, sound odd, put together, they sound beautiful, it's melodic, it's music. And he's saying, hey, I want you to, your walk to be worthy of the gospel. This is the only imperative verb in the whole passage today, which is the, 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 the command verb. Everything else is tight, you know, supporting it, little participles and some indicative verbs. And there's one command. That one command is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Here's the first way you can do it. Stand firm, lock in 
as one. And you can't individually lock in in contending for the faith that we'll see in a moment without really knowing what you believe. Like you gotta know what you believe. And you see, in the past, it was easy as a cultural Christianity in a, in a season of life, <laughs> a couple of hundred years, where I'm, I'm American, therefore I'm Christian mindset that we saw and we, we've seen uh, blown up and that we're now in a post-Christian culture that's becoming more and more post-Christian by the day. And, and before it was easy, but it was bad. Because it gave the illusion that I'm a follower of Christ because of this attachment by my nationality. And so there's nothing new under the sun, right? He's challenging them a long time ago. It's pertinent today that our citizenship is in heaven, not here. It's Christ, not Caesar. And he says, if you're gonna stand firm, you gotta know what you believe, which is incumbent on those living in a post-Christian culture. Because there's a brazenness and an openness now to challenge your faith that wasn't there before. And he says, but that's really done well together, right? So this is all the yous in the text today are in the plural, not the singular. So it's a y'all thing. Tim, you gotta do your part as a man, right? And that's, that's the first step. That's not the last step. The next step is when Gwen is doing her part as a woman of God. And, and then down the road, down the line, that all of us together, knowing what we believe, walking as one, standing firm in one spirit, but also, look, with one mind, striving side by side. That's the second way you can live worthy. And I hope you're starting to see that contextually, a life worthy of the gospel is not about you performing and being super Christian. It's about having this conviction of your beliefs and having a firmness about that connected to each other. Because standing firm was a military word. Striving side by side is an athletic word. It's soon athleto. Like athleto sounds like what? Athlete. And soon is that Greek prefix, S-U-N, that means with. So it means to be an athlete with, together. You're a team. Every team that, wa- that played basketball yesterday, if, if, if or football today, or, or soccer later, right? Pick your sport, it doesn't matter. Every sport is a team sport, even cross country. You know, there's a bunch of runners in the woods, but they're all counting points together. I take five guys all day long who aren't gonna be NBA draft picks, but really play together and have played together a while and they get each other and they know each other and they can pass without looking because they know where they'll be. Over a team yesterday that's got three NBA draft picks, but they don't know each other. Those teams win a lot more than these teams typically because sport is a team deal. And the body of Christ is a team deal. And so Paul is saying, if you want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel, you need to be in the body, walking together, moving forward, and striving here feels like it's angst-driven, but it translates in a different word that I like better, contending. He says, contend together, side by side, walking this out, saying, I'm not alone. Our unity is found in the faith. And you know what COVID exposed? COVID exposed the false unity of the American church and frankly, the global church, 
meaning this. The church fractured, and it was happening without us even realizing it because it showed throughout that epidemic, pandemic that there was, an, there was a unity that we believed that was based on something other than Jesus, which is never a unity. And so you had people who were Republican who couldn't believe you could be a Christian and be a Democrat. And people who were Democrat who couldn't believe you could be a Christian and be a Republican. And they would leave churches like this one in every other single church in this country. Because they were thinking that, well, they don't believe what I believe politically, so I can't stay here. That is not what a church is. Democrats and Republicans can't exist together at Carmel. Shocking, right? Because our unity in Christ is built on the gospel of Jesus. Our hope is not in Caesar, but in Jesus. And so there's, there's this, I, I would encourage you to, to read an article on Gospel Coalition website. It was about the anxiety that's already rising in our country because of the election that's coming in November. And there, there are people who are frantic already in January about, oh my goodness, if that guy wins, Oh my goodness, if that guy wins, right? And, and there's this, <gasps> Paul's blowing this up. As much as you might not like either candidate this year, imagine living a, in, a, in an empire of a Caesar. Terrifying time to live. And so the big rocks in the jar of a manner worthy of the gospel have nothing to do with politics or sport or anything else, has everything and only to do with the gospel of Jesus. That's the big rock that we stack in there. The things that matter for us is the virgin birth of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the inerrancy and the infallibility and the trustworthiness of God's word. These are the big rocks in the jar that really unite us. It's him and who he is who he was and is and always will be. That's why we can step into an election year and go, yeah, it's a big deal. But guess what? Don't fall again for this line. This is the biggest election of your lifetime. <laughs> right? How many times have you heard that? Because America's gonna die if we don't get the Supreme Court right. We're, America's gonna die if that guy gets elected and on and on and on. Our hope is in Christ and revival and renewal in any land or culture has always been Jesus, Christ alone. So you wanna live worthily. It's not about being good enough and performing and manning up or womaning up. It's about walking in unity, standing firm, contending together in one spirit, one mind, like a real team. For what? the last line for the faith of the gospel for the faith of the gospel that's it plain and simple the gospel remembering being the good news of the life death and resurrection of Jesus and that through faith in him we can be forgiven and reconciled to God the greatest story ever told and it's the common story to all men and women whether you're Indian or Bengali or Russian or American it doesn't matter people are people and the only answer is Christ and Christ alone. And it's driven by, our worthy walk is driven by 
our unity. Sometimes I read books other than theology books. In my guilty pleasure, my favorite genre of book is biography, sports biographies and or leadership biographies. And I just started a great book called The Boys in the Boat. I bet a lot of you have read it. There's a movie made or being made. And it's the story of eight unlikely characters in, at, at the University of Washington in the 1930s who end up going to the Olympics with Hitler. And um, the improbability of their success because at that time, all the rowing teams were dominated by a couple on the West Coast, but primarily by the, the elite schools on the East Coast in New England. And the boys who tried out for the boats in Washington had a boat builder from England who built boats out of wood and a coach who understood unity. And they were the sons of loggers and mechanics and working class men, not the intellectual, you know, whatever, who were weak. And this boat was... Uh, a fascinating story, and the book opens with the author going to meet Joe, I've lost his last name, who was one of the stars of the eight. Strapping, oh, he's just this, you know, strong guy, but he kept getting cut. He kept getting cut because his times were slower than the other guys, and, but they found out that the boat itself as a whole was faster when he was in the boat, and it drove the coach crazy. This doesn't make sense. You're not as fast as the other guys. But when you're not in the boat, the boat doesn't go as fast. But there was something about the unity of that, you know, that pool and their oneness and just the beauty of them just gliding across the lake that took them to the gold medal to Hitler's dismay. And it's a great picture. You might think of yourself, you're not good enough to be on the team, on, in the boat, to do anything around here. And that's a lie. The truth is, no matter what your speed or ability and all those things, that's irrelevant. He's gifted you with gifts. The fruit of the Spirit is born in you and you're needed. And we win when you're in the boat and your life is worthy of the gospel, reflective. I'll say it that way. Your manner of life is reflective of the gospel when you're in the boat and not alone. Can you imagine one guy in a boat built for eight? <laughs> it wouldn't go very far, very fast. But he says, thirdly, this is how you walk worthy, is that you're not afraid, that you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, right? It's like, I, I want you to walk as one and when you're together, fear is less powerful, right? It's easier to be spooked and to be afraid. This word is not used much and it was, in fact, I think this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it was used in classical literature and it was soldiers used it of a, of a horse that would get spooked, you know, like this massive stallion who turns into like, like scared little pony because of a snake and he, you know, rears up and, and all that and like all he had to do is step on it. But, he, but he's, he's intimidated and he's afraid and so you see, you see the picture, right? 
when you're firm in your faith and you're surrounded with your, your people and you're in the body, you're walking as one and the message is the message, you're not distracted with secondaries, fear doesn't have the grip over you that it normally would. And, and there's something powerful about it because the, the humility piece of this is coming next week in chapter two, verses one to four. But today there's this, this boldness, not, not arrogance and not in your face and not ugly and all that jazz, but a boldness that is saturated in humility and love that causes our opponents, those who would disagree and mock your faith to go, <clears throat> even if it's not outward at first, but to inwardly think, they're not rattled. Why are they not rattled? What's wrong with this picture? They should be scared and intimidated. But he says in verse 29 something very interesting from that. He says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, this, this does not fly for us. <laughs> You've been granted to not only believe, but to suffer for him. <clears throat> Let me get some coffee. Because this doesn't make sense to us. <clears throat> we don't suffer, right? That's, who wants to suffer? Who goes looking for suffering? It's not natural to want to feel pain in any way. But he says it's been granted to us. And the word here for granted is a cousin word to grace. And so we have been graced. Let's just make it even more awkward. We have been graced to believe, easy, and to suffer for him. And this is where the improbability of joy comes into play very, very well. And we have to remind ourselves when we are suffering that it's not accidental, as if God is this distant, you know, creator who's not involved with us and things are just working themselves out. Or is also, uh, it's, it's not punishment that you're suffering because you're, you know, you're a loser and you've done something wrong and, and you're just being punished for that. In, in those moments of suffering, we have to remind ourselves of this solid theological thought in verse 29 that I've been graced to suffer for him as well as to believe on him. Paul says it this way in chapter three, we'll be there later. But he says, I want, to listen, I want this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. What? How is that possible? Let me make a distinction contextually for the day. There's a suffering that we all experience that's not a part of this context today. It, we all have suffered in different ways for things like um, uh, health issues, um, losing a loved one. Um, it, a thousand things that are really common to all of us, right? And we could live in any country and experience those things. And they're real and they're painful, and it hurts. But there's a suffering different than that that is for the gospel, 
And that's what this text is about. And very few of us in this room or watching online suffer for that. That's not an indictment. It's, it's actually just, it's where we live. And, and, you know, there are other places, North Korea and others, you love Jesus, you die, right? It's, you're, you suffer for the gospel in, in different ways. But it's changing here. And this is a great word for us to get ready to put our feet in the ground militarily or athletically in community to say, that storm that I see coming, I wanna be ready for. Like when you've sat on the porch at the beach and you can see the rainstorm coming. Like if you're in your car, it's not fun, right? It's like, oh gosh, <laughs> this is terrible. When you can see that black wall of water moving towards you, it's dark. But when you're on the porch at the beach and you've seen a storm coming, it's like, oh, this is great. Get the coffee, get the rocking chair. The storm's coming. This is cozy, cozy good, right? There's a storm coming. It's arrived, and there's, there's a persecution that started in this country, and the answer to that is Christ and Christ alone. Do we need to be involved? Do we need to vote? Do we need to run for office? Yes, do all those things, but don't be sucked into thinking that your hope is in the White House. Your hope, our hope is in God's house, Christ, Christ alone, and he says here, I want you to suffer the right way. And to know that, and I'll just say this as an aside, whether you're here or here, he's with you. He's with you. He's in you. And just as an encouragement for all of you who are suffering for those other reasons, not gospel related, we have so many great small groups that you can jump into. Because remember, you, can, you, you live worthy of the gospel together, not alone. You've got you to have circles you have to be in circles. And so we have care groups from things, loss of life to those in a broken marriage, for those struggling with sexual addictions, to those walking with loved ones that have mental health issues, the, all over the map. And so we, we invite you to find one and get into that and to, to suffer in community and to find restoration and renewal and hope through and outside the other side of that, that journey, amen? When you're alone, you think you're the only one and that's where the enemy loves you to live. You're the only one dealing with this and it's just not true. He's with us, amen? But he goes on to say this, engaged, last verse, we are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> There's this conflict and this is such an important truth to recognize, to know that when we, if we don't understand conflict biblically, it's gonna be really easy to hate that woman. It's gonna be really easy to hate that dude because all of a sudden the pushback that you feel gets a face and we forget two things. One is that God is in control of all things. He's not surprised by anything that we walk through. And two, that we wrestle not, as Paul told the Ephesian church, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers of this dark world. So when you are 
busted and beat up and fighting something, you've got to look up and past her or him to say, they're not my enemy. They're being used by the enemy to bring this in me. But when we look up and we recognize who really is the enemy, we go to our knees in prayer and we fight spiritual battles spiritually through the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we live worthily of the gospel. It's imperative upon us because the big deal for them in Philippi wasn't so much Jesus. It was that it's not Caesar. You know how Hinduism has like 330 million gods? I'm not making that up. So if you just, you know, wanna follow Jesus in Hindu life, no problem. Just put him on the mantle at home with the other 330 million, right? There's no Jesus is Lord and then everything else is gone. And so for Roman citizens who were like, all hail Caesar, and now you've got these folks in town that are singing songs and talking about a resurrected Jewish rabbi and Jesus is Lord, that's a problem. And you know what happened in that town, just like here? Families disassociate with each other. People stopped doing business with each other. People got into conflict and went into court. Sound familiar? Like the, the bakers who wouldn't make a cake, who've been in court for years here in the States. See, there's nothing new under the sun. The problems are the same and the solution is the same. The answer is not being mad at people, it's being mad at the enemy, who is a liar, by the way, and who doesn't play fair or honestly or properly. And so we have to pray for discernment, we have to pray for wisdom, and we have to see things for what they are and recognize who's in charge and who the enemy is and is not in our life, and that that really matters. Here's an interesting thought as we close chapter one. Verse seven, we saw there was a, this plea and encouragement and uh, like affirmation that they were defending the gospel, right? And, and, and in the 20s, last week, it was like, way to go proc, uh, proclaiming the gospel. It's awesome. But today, we're ending the chapter with this notion of let your life, manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. Like, how you live matters, because if you're like champion, if you're like captain, awesome apologist and defender of the gospel and know all things and can crush any intellectual argument of, a, of, of somebody else, but your life doesn't match what you say, you're actually doing more harm. Or if you can preach like, a, like Billy Graham and just crush the world or just your speech, this isn't just for preachers, it's just your words. You're just, you just, you know, if your life doesn't match, you're doing more harm. But man, what if all three line up? By God's grace, that your words and your life as you're living together really are in concert. Wow, what a great life. What a great impact you can have at home, across the street, and around the world. So, 
Let me ask you this question again. When I say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, does that inspire you or intimidate you? Does that encourage you or discourage you? I hope that it's in the positive. I can't tell by a lot of serious looking faces because he's told us this is not about you being great and awesome and perfect. This is about you living in the grace of Christ together as one and that good things come from that. So fathers, we bow our hearts before you this morning. We wanna process this text And I pray for everyone listening at home or in the car or in this room. And I pray, Father, that there would be this sense of freedom and lightness that has been delivered by your word and the spirit that our worthiness in walking has nothing to do with us. It's your grace given to us as y'all. So, Father, I ask, are any of you afraid? If where we've come as a country and what feels like it's coming, does that make you afraid? Does it make you long for the good old days? Or does it fill you with faith and joy of the opportunity of this season of life? That we are not alone. Be honest and talk to the Father about that for a moment, would you? Father, we pray that because of the unity in this room, an an acknowledgement of what really matters, that there would be a unity from our community through the grace of Christ and that we would step forward day by day with joy and not fear. I pray against every lie that's been believed in the room and that the truth of your word would blow up those lies, render them powerless, and that we would walk in the freedom that your Holy Spirit gives us. In Jesus' good name, amen.